have a, a very high tolerance risk. I don't agonize. I, I understand my risk. And if something doesn't work right, I'm going to try to fix it or work my way through it. And I just have a personal confidence that I can accomplish that. Um, I don't think you should be in the development business if you can't handle stress. And stress and loss are related, as you know, Clayton. And if you if you agonize over everything uh, unendingly, um, you're you're going to have problems. I I will tell you, you know, there's a line in the Bible about uh, the lilies of the field, and you know, you if you know, worry doesn't solve the problem. Going out and working on it does. Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast, where investors, developers, brokers, and real estate entrepreneurs join together to grow, build, and execute on experience and strategies within the commercial real estate industry. We sit down with the top pros and leaders within the commercial real estate field and gain knowledge and insight from their success. We're glad you're here and look forward to connecting with you. You can find the CRE Project on all major podcast platforms, along with YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. Uh, Super pumped that you are here joining me today. We have an absolutely exceptional guest joining us today. We welcome Ed Cross uh, out of the San Antonio and uh, Houston markets. And um, if you've done any type of business in San Antonio, you've probably crossed paths with Ed. Um, you know, what I really, really, truly appreciate about Ed is he is a true visionary and a pioneer and a entrepreneur when it comes to commercial real estate. Ed is known for developing projects um, that truly change the landscape of a market. And we talk about that. Um, so I've always admired Ed. He's been uh, a true and personal uh, mentor to me early on in my career. And uh, I always learn a lot from him. So uh, got a lot out of this show. I know you will too. Sit back, relax. Here we go. Ed, thanks so much for joining me on uh, the CRE Project podcast today. Uh, I'm honored uh, to have you on. And, you know, this is a special show for me because a lot of people obviously know me in the commercial real estate space in Albuquerque, but a, a lot of them don't know that my uh, commercial real estate path actually started with you and Crossing Company uh, in San Antonio, Texas. So near and dear to my heart. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank you publicly for, you know, taking a chance on me. And I was a college kid that just, you know, randomly showed up one day with a lender um, named Jim Hornbuckle, if that reminds you of the past. I don't know if he's still active or not, but, um, you know, it was random. I was out of the sky and, you know, basically asked for an internship out of the blue and you gave me a shot. So I, uh, I'm thankful for that to this day. And I want you to know that. So, uh, thanks for joining me today on the show. This is awesome. You're welcome. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, thrilled and pleased with your success and, uh, uh, honored to be on the show today. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a journey thus far. So, yes. and I got a long path it, to go. It always so. is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to that end, since everyone kind of heard my start, I would love for you to kind of give a background on, on who you are and uh, how you kind of entered the commercial real estate 
industry and and kind of how you uh grew up through the business well um i'll try to make it short yeah, uh it's extensive, the, the, I know. the long story it takes 67 years to tell <laughs> uh, um so i uh, i'm a native of uh, houston uh went to the university of texas um got a degree in accounting um it was interesting accounting came easy to me and in retrospect numbers came easy to me and after college i went to work for the firm that has become ernst and young and i worked there for three years and i realized probably in the first week i was a fish out of water that i was not uh, cut out to be a public accountant but in those days this was uh 1977 you stuck with it and you know for me it was a graduate degree i i, I was uh, able to get my cpa but more importantly and this is a paid dividends throughout my career <clears throat> i learned how to organize numbers for presentations and uh, with you and all the young people that have worked for me over the years one of the things that i've uh, tried to uh, impart to uh, the you and those uh, is uh, how to present numbers, present a proposal, present um, a real estate deal in a way, uh, this has been my, my catch line, in a way that the, the recipient doesn't have any questions, mm -hmm. that it's all logical and follows, you know, you reach a conclusion. Yep. And it's actually quite hard to do. Um, you start at the top left of the page and you end at the bottom right. Yep. And, uh, and so that was really the the life lesson that I got from being in public accounting. I went to work for a, uh, an architect, the rare architect who is a very good business person, uh, whose name is John Kirksey. And I was uh, dropped into an architectural firm. There was a six person development staff and 30 architects. And uh, I was exposed to it on a daily basis. And again, I learned something very quickly that I have a love of architecture. I love how architects work and how they think and how they uh, approach a project. But again, I learned quickly that I wasn't uh, an architect. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have the drawing and the spatial skills to do that. Um, Houston in the 1980s, early 80s was a very magical time. The price of oil had gone from $3 a barrel to 40. Wow. Uh, it, was a, it was a boom era. Uh, in fact, what's happening in Austin right now is uh, to me feels very, very similar to that boom in Houston. Um, but uh, as all things go, it had to end. And in 1984, uh, the price of oil went from 40 to 10. And wow. uh, the office building business, uh, which was what I had gotten into, um, was, uh, was cratering. We went from 10 million square feet of absorption a year in 82 to 10 million negative in oh, 83 wow. and 84. And um, one of the questions you asked me, uh, Clayton, to speak to was my first deal. I, I was fortunate. I was on the landlord side. So I was representing buildings and I had an inventory. And so I didn't have to cold call. I really was taking calls off of signs and brokers calling me. So that was uh, a, a, a great way to learn the business and get started on the business rather than having to pound the phones. And the very first deal I did was a 1,200 square foot office lease with uh, with a guy named Mike Kennedy. And, uh, Mike, <laughs> nice. uh, yeah, you you know who Mike is. And right. uh, 
Mike became a good friend. And in 1984, when kind of the world in Houston was coming to an end, there were a number of us who were all in our late twenties, um, kind of had to leave. We had to go to greener pastures and I moved to San Antonio, uh, and Mike moved to Austin. There were about eight or 10 of us that knew each other. And we called ourselves the Houston real estate refugees. <laughs> and uh, Appropriate, right? I guess. Yeah, you know, so, it's funny how that, that yeah. worked. And Mike, of course, became a dominant tenant rep broker in Austin. And actually, his firm ultimately became the Cushman Wakefield office. And as you'll learn in a minute, you know, so that was my path as yeah, well. And, yeah. and, and Mike actually helped me in that path. So I'm, I moved to, to San Antonio in, in January of 85. I went to work for a large development company called Embry Investments. They were really best known as an apartment developer and are to this day. But I was on the commercial side, on the office building side. San Antonio was not nearly as dependent on the oil and gas business as Houston. So mm-hmm. 85, 86, and 87 were good years in San Antonio And in 86, the federal government changed the tax rules about write-offs. And San Antonio had some very entrepreneurial bankers and savings and loans. And this is not widely remembered, but San Antonio was a regional banking center. We had 51 or 52 banks and savings and loans uh, headquartered in San Antonio. And the savings and loan group had been very aggressive on real estate. Mm -hmm because of the tax uh, advantages. And when the, when the laws changed and, you know, different things happened, a, a recession started then, they were the first to fail. And the federal government, the FDIC and what became the RTC, their MO at that time was to go in and close the institution and to sell off the assets. And San Antonio was kind of the epicenter of that a little known fact, San Antonio was every bit as big a banking center as Charlotte, North Carolina. Hmm, interesting. Banks were the same size. And because we failed first, um, we got flushed first and 5,000 bankers lost their job in there. Wow. Unreal. And, and a big bank in North Carolina called NCNB, North Carolina National Bank, uh, rolled up a bunch of Texas banks, including several in San Antonio. Uh, NCNB's nickname in Texas was no cash for nobody. And uh, <laughs> they basically spent their time calling loans and wow. chasing, chasing people for uh, personal guarantees. Hmm. And a uh, little, little quick aside on this, uh, Clayton, when I was in, in Houston in the early 80s, I was mad that I, was, I had gotten into the business too late. Everybody I knew that had been at it two or three years had made a fortune mm-hmm. and I missed my chance. I'll talk about this in a minute, but the very first project development project I did was in 1983 in Houston. And I built a five unit townhouse project in, uh, in kind of a Bohemian area called the Heights. The Heights is now a very uh, expensive neighborhood in Houston. Uh, I, I started in 83, delivered in 84, and I caught the downturn perfectly. <laughs> and, and so when I moved to San Antonio in 1985, I, I still own three townhouse uh, uh, units in Houston. And it was sort of like uh, rare rabbit and, you know, uh, you know, can't get rid of the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, uh, I learned a lesson 
some pretty quickly about uh, losing money in the real estate business. I, I ended up losing $40,000 on those projects. And uh, uh, that was all the money in the world. Yeah, and, no doubt. Know, that, that was a early life lesson about development. So back to San Antonio um, in, in 88, the market really turned down and starting in 89 and 90, I, um, you know, having not had a lot of, of projects, I was kind of uh, fresh and clean and able to raise money. And so I started buying foreclosures. Um, I, I was kind of indiscriminate. I, I really didn't understand what I was doing. So I bought everything. I bought uh, busted subdivisions. I bought retail. I bought office buildings. I bought industrial. Anything I could figure out, I bought. And in retrospect, I wish I bought more because I was buying, I, I bought office buildings for $18 a foot. Wow. Unreal. I bought I bought lots in subdivisions for a thousand dollars a piece, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, that's uh, un unbelievable. Yeah, and and of course it's you know forty years of hindsight. Yeah. In '92, my world changed, and in 1992, I was the fifth or sixth leasing agent on a big downtown office building that had been built by Dallas Bank, Republic Bank, and it was empty and um, 250,000 foot building, very big building. And one day the phone rang and it was Southwestern Bell. And they were, they had been, the AT&T had been broken up. They were called the Baby Bells. And Ed Whitaker was the new CEO. And he wanted to change the culture and the sense of, of Southwestern Bell. They were a majority owner in the Mexican telephone company. And so he picked Southwestern Bell up and moved it lock, stock and barrel from St. Louis to San Antonio. Wow. And I was the lucky real estate office leasing guy and I caught it and it was, it, that's unreal. You know, it, it, it had a number of impacts. Uh, San Antonio, of course, was a beneficiary. They ultimately had 8,000 employees here. Um, I kind of got put on the map as a real estate broker. Ultimately I became the AT&T legacy real estate broker. I've done all of, did all of AT&T's work in San Antonio for 35 years. And, Very cool. Uh, yeah, that that has that was actually one of the reasons we became a part of Cushman and Wakefield later is because of my personal relationship there. But um, so how that, did how did that deal come to you? I'm just curious. Yeah, uh, was it a call or I mean, I mean that's a massive deal. So yeah, so the economic development uh, agency in San Antonio got the call and they called me and said, "We know you have the space. Could you give these guys a tour?" It didn't tell me who it was. And three guys showed up, Rich, Bob, and Jim, and they were obviously corporate executives. <laughs> and uh, I gave them a tour, you know, spent three hours talking about everything, you know, it was deep dive. And they said, okay, thanks. And they went away. And so uh, about 10 days later, I'm in my office and I'm on a call and my assistant walks in. By the way, I was still at Embry, so this was in that era. And my assistant walks in and she goes, Ed, Bob's on the phone. I go, okay, tell them to hold. And oh, really? uh, I, I finished my call and started another call. Nice. And she rushes in, she says, Ed, Bob's on the phone. So, oh, okay. And I hung up and I picked up the phone and it was Bob. Yeah. And this was pre-internet days. And so that led to a negotiation of a letter of intent. And I was sending my faxes to a blind fax number to company ABC, anywhere USA. Mm -hmm. And I negotiated a complete 
uh, term sheet for a 250,000 foot office lease. Wow. So um, I, we, we signed it. I, uh, the building was under contract by then to International Bank of Commerce, big, big bank out of Laredo. Uh, and I was dealing with uh, the chairman of the board of the bank, Dennis Nixon, who actually I knew and was a partner with on some of my foreclosure deals. And so um, I, I actually had no idea who I was dealing with. We, this was pre-internet. We were trying to figure it out. And so we signed the letter of intent on Friday. On Sunday, there was an article in one of the local papers that said a division of Southwestern Bell, their international division, the group that dealt with Mexico, was moving to San Antonio. So they kind of had mm-hmm. an inkling of it, but not really. Yeah. And uh, and I get a phone call Sunday afternoon and said. Uh, we're going to have an announcement Monday morning in the lobby of the, of the building. And you need to be there at, at seven 30 and, and the, the presentation is going to be at eight 30. So I, I actually went, uh, I met across the street in the lobby of the Sheridan Gunter hotel. And I, I, I walk in and there's rich Bob and Jim. And Rich is Rich Harris, is Executive Vice President of Human Resources for Southwestern Bell. Jim is, uh, now I'm forgetting these names. Jim was the Chief Corporate Counsel, and uh, Bob was the Executive VP and Chief Financial Officer. And I walk up and they, they stick out their hand and said, Ed, congratulations, you've negotiated the relocation of Southwestern Bell. Oh my gosh. St. Louis to San Antonio. And Ed, we'd like you to meet the governor of Texas, Ann Richards. <laughs> wow, what a day. And and literally, I walk out, and there's uh, Ann Richards, and our mayor was Nelson Wolf, and it was the biggest economic development day in the history of San Antonio. Oh, my goodness. And, and uh, Clayton, in another conversation, probably with an adult beverage, I'll tell you the backstory. There's yeah. more. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> So um, that, you know, that actually was in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times the next day. I mean, it, it was one of the first yeah. big corporate headquarters relocations. So that's and what, of course, go ahead. Yeah, of, of course, if you can move once, you can move twice. And yeah. so, you know, 2008, 16 years later, um, Whitaker's successor, Randall, Randall Stevenson, who's a personal friend of mine, picked him up and moved him to Dallas. So, wow. Easy come, easy go. Yeah, no doubt. So that, so in 92, that's what really kind of catapulted, I guess, the brokerage side of your career. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I had made a good living, but that put me on the map and that led to a whole series of deals. I actually, my, my practice was heavy corporate. I did all the work for Valero Energy, did all their headquarters work and Cox and Smith, the largest law, law firm in San Antonio, <clears throat> company called Kinetic Concepts, which at its peak had about 6,000 employees here. So that kind of gave me the seal of approval as the local corporate office guy. Yeah. And I ended up, I ended up doing about a million and a half square feet of transactions for AT&T. I did all of Valero's work. I did their corporate campus, um, did a, probably a million square feet for them. So it it was a really nice run for a number yeah. of years. So obviously, like you said, you know, you didn't identify with accounting, didn't identify with architecture. 
why did brokerage stick? What do you what did you enjoy about brokerage? Why did you feel like that agreed with you and your personality? Oh, that's a great question. Um, this is going to sound funny coming from an ex-accountant. Um, I, I, I have terrible ADD and uh, I'm, I have a gift for numbers. I, I'm a, I, I think I'm a relatively good salesperson and persuasive. And I kind of fell into brokerage in Houston and mm -hmm. was good at it, was you know, able to generate deals. I, I guess, Clayton, if I, if, I, I guess if I was to tell you the secret sauce, I, I have a gift for uh, abstract thinking. Interesting and, answer. I like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Bible talks about spiritual gifts, gifts of teaching and, you know, disciple and, and preaching. And, and it's always affected my thinking that people have business gifts too. And for me, I, I guess if I was to say what really differentiates me from my peers is I've always seen deals before anybody else. And having that, that, and I'll call it a gift, be able to say, well, if this, then that, Yeah. then being able to go see somebody and say, I think you should do this. And this is why, and then give them the numbers and having that, uh, you know, this combination of things was, I think in retrospect, critical to my brokerage career and, and Clayton, I'll say something else. I've always been able to summarize real estate concepts succinctly. Uh, Paul Fagan used to say that I talked C-suite. And so I could walk into a CEO or a CFO yeah. and I could relate it to them of what they needed to do and why in a manner that they go, oh, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And so, Great answer. I, yeah. I think it was just a combination of, of gifts and talents that came to, came to bear. Yeah. I don't want to because I got a lot of stuff I want to cover with you because you've accomplished <laughs> so much. But to kind of put a wrap on, you know, kind of starting out in your career for the brokerage side of it, because I'm kind of want to get more into the development side of things. But what do you think really makes uh, like what's the key ingredient for a successful broker since you've had so many years of being a successful broker? Can I tell you a little quick story? Please. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I've hired hundreds of brokers in my career. And one of the things that we discovered over time that made that that was a way of discerning who would be a good broker was whether they had been a college athlete. Interesting. College athlete. So the college athletes we discovered were competitive. Mm -hmm. So to play at the college level, you've got to have a a real competitive streak in you. Number two, they were coachable. So you could go in and say, don't, don't do it this way, do it this way. And they would listen to you and learn. Number three, they could multitask. You could do, you could handle several things at once. Isn't it interesting hearing an accountant who's a linear yeah. person talk about multitasking? Yeah. And number four was the most important ingredient, Clayton. They had tasted defeat. If you play at the college level, you've been beaten. Mm -hmm. And you've had to pick yourself up and go out and play the game again the next day. Yep. And so that, 
it's interesting how many of the young people I've hired over the years that couldn't handle loss, that couldn't handle being told no, that couldn't handle working on a transaction for months and it die. They literally couldn't handle that. And so I've had a lot of successful real estate people who weren't college athletes, but they had those attributes. Yeah, no, it's a it's a fantastic answer. And thanks for saying that. And it's funny you said that because that's literally hearing you talk. That's what I was thinking in my head was, gosh, man, when this guy was getting going in his career, I mean, Houston market tanked and then he moves to San Antonio and then that market started to get soft. It was just like hit after hit. And then you finally, you know, ended up being super successful for many, many years. So having that grit and that tenacity and that persistence, you know, ultimately pays off in this business. And I couldn't agree more in the brokerage side of things for sure. So thank you for that. That, That's a fantastic story and completely agree with you. So let's, let's move into development. And this is where I really admire you um and my time with you and and you know david adelman back in back in the day and i say back in the day 10 years ago now which is unbelievable (laughs) unbelievable to think about but you know you guys were really the pioneers when it came to urban development in the you know downtown core of san antonio and your stable project unless you you know correct me if i'm wrong of course but was the Vistana project in downtown, which has a really, really fascinating story. So I'd like to spend a good chunk of time on this. I'd love for you to dig in and really paint the picture for, you know, the the listeners listening that have no idea what Vistana is. Just tell us that whole story. Like, how did you come up on this project? How did you, you know, have the vision for it? Because, you know, you had to have a vision for a project like that. And just walk us through that entire thing. Yeah. So, of course, I had already done some development before I did the Vistana. I, the townhouse project I mentioned in Houston, David yep. Adelman and I had had gotten into the industrial business and built some buildings. So um, I, I had tasted the world of development and uh, I really enjoyed it. The creativity of developing is like brokerage times 10. And what I really enjoy enjoy present tense about the development process is it's one series of of uh issues after another that you have to think through about how to do it right and i really really enjoy that that process of you know how big is the building where does it sit on the site you know how does it meet the street where do you enter it you know how did how does your stack work every single issue requires thought and some give and take well, and, and I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I want to interrupt you because I think it's important for people to hear what you just said. And that's you embraced you embrace issues versus looking at them as necessarily an adverse effect oh, to a right. project, which, again, I think is a huge attribute to you personally. And that's why you're successful. So anyway, well, continue. Well, but that, that was that was big. Hold that thought, because there's one part of development I'm not good at. And I'm <laughs> okay. going to I'm going to touch address on that. that here in a minute. So um, going all the way back to the days being in the architectural office, I had fallen in love with architecture as just uh, an interest. And so Clayton, my idea of a vacation is to go to a big city and put on tennis shoes and walk around. As you and I were talking before we got on the air, I, I was in Albuquerque last month and I put on tennis shoes and I walked all around downtown at 6.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I just love the experience 
urban areas and the variety of buildings. Y'all have got such a wonderful mix in Albuquerque of Art Deco and kind of Pueblo style, mm -hmm. you know, modernist buildings. There's there's a, a nice mix of architecture in Albuquerque and uh, also the, the form of, of cities. So San Antonio, all the cities in America that were laid out by the Spaniards. So San Antonio, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Tucson, uh, San Diego were designed by what was called the Law of the Indies. And the Law of the Indies dictates a, a, a main plaza where City Hall is and the Catholic Cathedral is. And so I served on the Planning Commission in the 1990s in San Antonio, and uh, I just kind of fell in love with this, this uh, you know, how do cities grow and how do they how do they uh, change over time? And so pulling that back to the Vistana and downtown San Antonio, in the 1920s, San Antonio was the biggest city in Texas. It was a regional hub, as we talked about a minute ago, as a banking center is where all the lawyers were. It's where you went for medicine. Lyndon Johnson, it was where all the all the good men's clothing stores were. This Commerce Street where Vistana is, there was a, it was Jewish clothing store row. There was literally hmm. eight uh, different clothing stores that were all owned by Jewish families. And that's where you went if you wanted a nice suit and shirt. And that's where Lyndon Johnson shopped. And then the 1960s happened and the, and the first great disaster to befall urban areas was urban renewal. And the area where Vistana was built was a, a very vibrant Hispanic neighborhood um, and good intentions. It was blighted. And under Lyndon Johnson, there was money for urban renewal. Well, what they did was they literally scraped, you know, the, the West Side neighborhood was eight blocks long by four blocks wide, and they completely scraped it. Wow. And, oh, they forgot to build it back. Yeah. And every major city in America did this, and they just they just scraped the fabric that mm. made them great cities. Wow. And so then <laughs> the interstate freeway system was created, and Loop 410 in San Antonio was done, and the first regional malls were built. And so Houston Street, which is the Vistana, is Houston Street on one side, Commerce Street on the other, Houston Street was where all the department stores were. And there were seven great department stores on Houston Street. Uh, Frost Brothers. Uh, I have to stop and think about all the names. They're all gone now. And they all picked up and they moved to the suburbs and moved into the malls. And so downtown San Antonio went into a long decline in the 70s, 80s, and in, in until the early 90s. And I was just fascinated by how urban areas redevelop. And, and, and Clayton, I, I say this regularly, so I'm not speaking out of turn. One of the benefits that I had was San Antonio's always 10 years behind the rest of the world. Mm. And so I'm a, I'm a traveler. I like to go to big cities. So I'd gone to Denver and seen Lodo. I'd gone to Portland, Oregon and seen the Pearl District. I'd gone to San Diego and seen the Gaslamp District. And in all these cities, there had been a redevelopment of the urban area, and it had been started by uh, artist lofts, and it and it had there was this cycle of redevelopment that led to ultimately the high-rise condominium living, 
And what was really instructive to me is that there's a big think tank called the Brooks, Brookings Institute. And they had done a white paper, probably 96, and it talked about how the cycle of development for how urban areas redevelop. And it's been seminal for me, and I've, I've spoken about it. I've given it to dozens of people. And I just, I just, I don't know what it was. I wanted to do it in San Antonio. And so David Adelman and I had bought an office building uh, that had been put in this urban redevelopment area and it had never worked. And we, it was a foreclosure. We, we bought it for $40 a foot. It was a butt ugly building. <laughs> it was catty corner to the Mercado and it owned, it was on half the block. The other half of the block was a one story bank. I mean, just total, um, you know, poorly used yeah. site, but it faced, I mean, it was between commerce, the main drag for small retail, Houston Street, main drag for big retail. It faced one of the great city parks, Milan Park. Caddy Corner across the street was the big Catholic charity hospital, Santa Rosa. Caddy Corner, the other direction was the Mercado, which was kind of the, the Hispanic be end-all, be-all for food and sure. entertainment and all that. It's a great property, great yeah. stuff. And so, uh, boy, I'm going to get in the weeds with you here. <laughs> I was on the downtown uh, board and the city of San Antonio had done a parking study. And the parking study said this near west side of downtown was 2,700 parking spaces short. Hmm. So David and I were, were, okay, what do we do this office building that we can't lease up? We yeah. never get more than 80%. And so I said, let's tear it down and build a garage. I like garages, you know, low CapEx and great yep. long-term asset. And I, he said, okay, go ahead. And so I started planning the garage. And pretty quickly I said, you know, it really helped to have the other side of the block, have the full city block. It was 62,000 feet of land. So I went to the bank and I said, could I buy your site and build a garage? And he said, yes. And then I said, well, if I'm gonna build a 500 car garage, what else can I do? So that became an apartment on top. And it was sort of like, oh, oh heck. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it went from this simple idea of a parking garage and I ended up building a the Vistana, 550,000 gross square feet, 250 parking spaces. I mean, uh, 250 apartments, 500 parking spaces and 30,000 feet of retail. And oh, by the way, in the garage, I have 114 mini storage units. <laughs> Uh, true multi-use property. That is for yes. sure. And I had traveled a lot and, and I'd seen this product type built in a lot of cities. In fact, the place I had seen it built that I had really studied the most was in Portland, Oregon. And I modeled this after a building I'd seen in Portland, which was Art Deco. And I, I'm an Art Deco nut. I travel uh, to all over the world to see Art Deco buildings. And, and so I, I had the model. And Oh, by the way, so I didn't want to be, I didn't want to create a development firm. I wanted, I, I practiced Clayton, what I call virtual development. And I, to this day, I still do it, which is I don't want to have an organization, but I want to hire everybody and bring them together for the project. So I had a project manager, a construction manager, architect, engineer, a bookkeeper. Uh, you know, I had all these people, but they were all independent contractors mm -hmm. and they come together for the project. They're paid by the project. And when the project's done, 
boom, they go away. A little quick aside. So looking back at my days in Houston, every single real estate development firm that I'd been associated with in Houston failed. And what I realized is, and this is the nature of real estate development, is that if you build an organization, you pay for the organization from the development fees from the project. Mm -hmm. And eventually you get to the point where you do a project that is, you know, a risky project, not because it's a great project, but because you need the fee. And when the inevitable downturn happens, you wake up and you have two mouths to feed. You have the project, which has failed. Yeah. You still have your development organization and the overhead. Yeah. And that's when you go bankrupt as a developer. And so good little tidbit of advice right there. Yeah. Yeah. That life lesson to me was I never wanted to build the organization. I could always pull the people together. Yeah. And I've always been able to. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And so um, now here is the secret sauce on Vistana. So the man who was the president of real estate for Southwestern Bell, his name is Mike Edelman, very dear friend. He had retired. Uh, so we got started on that project in 2005. He had retired in 2004 at age 58. <laughs> and wow. I called him and I said, hey, Mike, uh, I want to build this big project in downtown and I need help. Will you be my project manager? And, and Clayton, understand who I hired. I mean, this guy had run a, yeah, no a kidding. $100 million dollar hundred million square foot portfolio of real estate for Southwestern Bell. And it was sort of like having Greg Popovich on your pickup basketball. (laughs) And he was my project manager. So I got really lucky. Yeah. And so, um, I, this is public knowledge. Now I, I went out and the, 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 one of my brokerage relationships was with, with a man named Carlos Alvarez. Uh, Carlos had shown up on my doorstep in San Antonio in uh, 1987, and I had leased him a little bit of space, office lease uh, him 1,200 feet, him and a secretary. And when I was negotiating the lease with him, I said, so what do you do? And he said, well, I'm in the beer business. And I said, oh, well, that's great. What, what do you mean? He goes, well, I've gotten the right to import this beer from Mexico. I've got the exclusive right for half the United States. And You've never heard of the beer, but I'm going to try to make it into something. And I said, great. Um, What's it called? And he said, Corona. So he had the exclusive importing rights for Corona and no one had ever heard of it. And he turned Corona into the brand that it is. And so over the next four or five years, he completely leased the building I put him in. Wow. He bought the building. And then I sold him seven office buildings around San Antonio over the next few years. And I had gone to a, a political fundraiser with he and his wife uh, years later. And his, his wife was this fireball of a woman. And I'd you know, been selling him all these buildings. And she grabbed me by the lapels, Clayton, at this <laughs> deal, this woman. And uh, 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 Carlos's wife, she grabs me by the lapels and she says, I want more real estate. Oh. So I remember that. Wow. Yeah, I I can see how you remember that. By the way, he had bought every building 
I sold them for cash. Oh my gosh. Wow. So I went back to them and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to build this building downtown. It's going to be $50 million. I need $20 million. Would you be my partner? And he said, yeah. Wow. And I was his first ever partner. And what a great uh, story. And so we built the building. Um, now let me tell you about what I, you know, mistakes I made. I had a superstar project manager, but I had a construction manager who wasn't good. And what I learned the hard way about development, Clayton, is running the contractor, running the process, getting the building built on time and on budget is a completely different expertise. And I don't have it. And, and you need to have a, a different focus. And, and, and frankly, you have to be a hard person. You have to be very demanding. And I'm not. It's not my personality. And the, 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 the building was a year late and I was $3 million over budget. And it was an enormous success in the apartments. It was an uh, enormous apartment success. But the retail didn't lease up and the garage didn't fill up. And if you remember, mm. this all got started with a parking yep. study. Yep. And the transient parking that I counted on never showed up. And I had hoped to lease 15,000 feet on the ground floor to CVS. And I went to their board of directors twice mm. and got turned down twice. And so my pro forma had a 30% hole in the NOI. Wow. And uh, I never recovered from that. Now, I mean, the, we made money when we sold it and we held it for 10 years and we made some money on it. But, you know, when you have a 30% hole in your NOI, you don't make the money you think you will. Yeah. But it, it put me on the map now as real estate guy, instead, mm -hmm. as a developer, instead of as a broker. And that's been a benefit to me ever since. So that when I go in to see public officials, city or county, Oh, you're the guy that was the pioneer that built Vistana. Yeah. And you did a great job. Yeah. It's and beautiful. Everybody knows that, yeah. Thank you. Everybody I mean, knows is. that I'm, I, I'm a man of my word and I perform and I, you know, when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And ultimately real estate is a, is a very small community yeah. and you're known by your character. And I, I'm very proud that that uh, is my reputation in San Antonio. Yeah. So, so why? didn't the parking work? I mean, if the studies were there, you know, did downtown shift or what, what was the reasoning? Why didn't that pan out? Cause that seemed like a, such a solid study and that's what started everything. Why didn't that pan out? Well, I'm going to give you two answers to that. Uh, one answer was part of the demand was from the hospital, but the hospital's front door was on the opposite side from the building. Okay. And so when, family came to check somebody into the hospital, they didn't even see my building. Um, and so, you know, how to get over there and, you know, directional signage and all that. Yeah. Over time I did it, but I never, I never got that. I got the, I got the monthly parking Clayton. I never got the transient parking mm -hmm. and that's really where the money is. And then same song, second verse for the Mercado. If you remember, uh, Mi Tierra and, um, uh, yeah. uh, um, uh, La Mar uh, Margarita, mm -hmm. uh, La Margarita are huge restaurants. I think Meteor's in the top three or four in the state. They yeah. do like $12 million a year and they're on the backside. And you, you come to the go there, you don't even know where my parking garage is. So in retrospect, I put the entry on the parking garage on the wrong side of the building. 
Interesting. Isn't that yeah. just a, it, you know, and I put, I put the housing facing the park and I put the garage facing away from the park. Yeah. A little subtle thing yeah. that the entry to the garage was, it's on Laredo street, completely hidden and all my directional signage, everything I did didn't work. Had it been on the other side of the building, it would have made all the difference. Just that little design. I mean, little design. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating to me. So not to not to dig in, but I, I just I love digging in on these lessons learned, you know. <laughs> so obviously, I'm sure there were some, some some sleepless nights, you know, when you were running behind and obviously budget. How did you how did you kind of handle that with I mean, were the partners very understanding or were there some, you know, content, you know, was it, was it contentious? I mean, talk to us a little bit about that because in the development space, the reason I ask this is because it, this happens all the time. I mean, if you're in the development business, it just does. It's just basically how bad, you know? Um, yeah. So I think it's an important lesson to hear, especially on a project of that scale, how, how you handled that at the time. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you three things on this issue. First and foremost, I always have skin in the game. Mm -hmm. I'm always an investor. I don't do this for fees. I do this for ownership. And that immediately differentiates you from a lot of people. And, and so when I was over budget, I was writing checks with my partner. Mm -hmm. And, and if you're, if you're not in that position and you, you have to go ask people for money and you're not similar yeah, risk, the pain. Yeah. Yeah. Immediately there's a barrier. Number two, I over-communicate. I mean, I, before we got on the call this morning, I was writing a three-page update letter on another one of my deals. And I, I go to, I, I don't want to surprise, no surprises. That's, mm -hmm. you know, I can handle bad news. Don't surprise me. Just yep. let me know as soon as you can. And so I've always over-communicated with my partner. So if something starts going wrong, there's, I'm going to tell them, hey, this is starting to happen and be ready. Yep. Um, and then number three, I, I, this again is how I'm wired. I will grind my teeth, but that, that thing I mentioned about being a broker earlier about being able to handle loss. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, a very high tolerance risk. I don't agonize. I, I understand my risk. And if something doesn't work right, I'm going to try to fix it or work my way through it. And I just have a personal confidence that I can accomplish that. Um, I don't think you should be in the development business if you can't handle stress. And stress and loss are related, as you know, Clayton. And if you, if you agonize over everything uh, unendingly, um, you're, you're gonna have problems. I, I will tell you, you know, there's a line in the Bible about uh, the lilies of the field and, you know, you, if, you know, worry doesn't solve the problem going out and working on it does. I, I would encourage everyone to like pause the podcast, rewind, listen to that three times over. That's just, it's, it's gold, you know, like you said, being able to take on that loss, over communicate, have skin in the game. Um, you know, those are all factors that, you know, obviously help navigate a project when it doesn't always go as planned, uh, which is can, all the time, pretty much. Can I tell you, so. can I tell you one more key sure. attribute? Marry well. Yeah. 
I married a real estate broker. Nancy worked for Weingarten Realty in Houston. And uh, one, she's been a, a great partner uh, for 37 years. I go home and cry on her shoulder. Uh, and she's used to the risk inherent in the real estate business. You know, when I was a broker, there was times I went a year plus without making any money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she was confident in me and she let me know she was confident in me and that she would support me. And having a, a spouse who's supportive and understanding, I think is also important. Yep. Not, not only a real estate lesson, they're a life lesson that is absolutely uh, impactful on your journey, yeah. no doubt. Um, so, uh, to put a, uh, a ribbon on Vistana, because again, I have some more I want to discuss with you, but you know, how did the project end? Let, let tell the yeah. audience about that. Well, you know, and unfortunately all good things must end and, and the building had been open for 10 years and what we had built, uh, what we had conceived of 15 years before now was, it wasn't A plus anymore. It was B plus. And it was time to go in and refresh, you know, do new bathrooms, do new kitchens, you know, update the pool area. And my partner, we just kind of looked each other in the eyes that we don't want to go through another, um, yeah. you know, capital infusion. So we took it to market, um, got a good price. We made a little bit of money, not what we'd, we'd hoped for 10 years before and um, sold it. And I, uh, we took it through a process, had good activity, and the group that bought it, I actually asked and that was allowed to reinvest uh, with them. Uh, one, you know, I feel like a parent and a child. This mm -hmm. was my baby. Amen. And um, and so I've kind of been of counsel to these guys, and they've gone in and they've spent millions of dollars, you know, upgrading finishes and the the amenity spaces, and they've done a really good job. Awesome. And, um, and so I'm very proud of what they've done. Um, they changed the name, which I'm still struggling with. They changed it from Vistana, which was a mashup word. Yeah. You know, Vista I think it's beautiful. Vintana, you I, I, you know, it was funny because, yeah. you know, like I said, when we, when I was yeah, looking to connect with you here, you know, I, go I was obviously Googling it, reminiscing, like I was telling you about, and yeah, well, they yeah, they, they named it, it the Inspire, and it's I like, know. no, it's not inspiring. So Yeah, I know. I don't know. The Vistana, I thought it was a beautiful name. So, yeah, I had heartburn over that just to make you feel better. Yeah. But <laughs> So that was in 2019, right? Or 2020 when you sold that? No, it was, or it was in the fall of, of 2019. And, okay. Uh, so I've, I, I still have a connection to the building as, uh, as a limited partner. I still help the guys out on, you know, property tax issues and things like that. But Thankfully, I don't have the daily asset management that I did before. Yeah, we have a little more freedom now for sure. So, okay, well, let's, um, yeah, let's move into the next project, which is fascinating to me, but it's called the Vicinia, which I love that name too, by the way. Uh, I think that's a beautiful name. And this is a, a, describe the project for me and describe what, it's called New, New Urbanist, right? Right, right. That's obviously, I would feel like somewhat of a new, maybe it's not a new trend, maybe for more, uh, you know, more cities out West here uh, where we're not as dense, but unlike Vistana, where you're in the core of downtown San Antonio, this is more of an urban project, kind of in a more suburban type of area on the West side of, of San Antonio. So I'd love to hear more about 
your vision for Vicinia, you know, what is new urbanist for the, you know, because I imagine there's a ton of listeners that don't know what that term even is and what attracts you to it. I mean, I'm, yeah, fill me in. This is fascinating. So um, I mentioned earlier that I served on the planning commission in the 1990s in San Antonio. That was one of the things I always suggest to the young people that have worked for me is to, um, is to get involved with, in the community, to volunteer, to serve on boards and commissions. Uh, one, it's helpful to your real estate practice to see uh, how the world works and the and public sector works in particular. And number two, you get to meet people that you otherwise wouldn't meet. And so in the mid nineties, new uh, project had been built in the panhandle of Florida called Seaside. And uh, the developer of Seaside had partnered up with uh, a pair of young uh, architects, land planners uh, out of Miami. Uh, the, the husband's name was Andres Duani, and the, uh, the woman's name was uh, Platter Zyback. I forget her first name. Man, I'm forgetting all the names today. It's like <laughs> bad sign. Um, yeah. but, but they had figured out what made the, the historic beachfront towns in Florida unique. And I mentioned it earlier about the law of the Indies, about how the Spanish laid towns out. Well, they did grids. And what was important about those historic cities was we didn't have cars. And it was about the pedestrian experience. It was about, you know, sidewalks mm-hmm. and, you know, feeling comfortable walking on the streets. And we, we lost that when cars became the dominant form of transportation. And so starting with Seaside, uh, the concept of new urbanism was born. Uh, it blossomed into a, an organization called the Congress for New Urbanism. And they've, they've developed and promulgated, you know, this is how it works. And it's, and it's actually, there's over 180 new urbanist projects across the United States. You can Google Congress for New Urbanism. You can see some of their examples. Um, Again, this was something I was fascinated in because of architecture, and uh, it was it was a, a new new old way of developing, and sort of like Vistana, where I'd always wanted to do a, a, a ground up project in an urban area. I always wanted to do a new urbanist project in San Antonio, um, and and by the way, uh, Clayton, I I have been so blessed, so fortunate in my life that my dreams, a dream of building a high rise apartment building in downtown San Antonio and now doing a new urbanist project in the suburbs, I've been able to, uh, to share that dream and persuade people to support me in that dream and raise money to do it. So it's amazing. Very, very, very fortunate. I've been thinking about this for 20 years and, um, a confluence of events happened that, um, our transit authority owned a piece of land that had been skipped over by development. It's on the west side of San Antonio. It's sort of, uh, it's just outside our first loop. San Antonio has two loops. It was outside the first loop and it was kind of at the front uh, side of a huge master plan development called Westover Hills, which has been hugely successful. There's 10 million square feet of office space. There's hospitals, there's um, uh, data centers, there's a chip fabrication plant. And it was at the front door of that. And it was skipped over because 
two major thoroughfares intersected on the site, Ingram coming from the north, military coming from the east. And in San Antonio, when you develop a piece of land, you have to build the major thoroughfares. And so the site was only 60 acres. And so these major thoroughfares were a disproportionate burden on 60 acres of land. If you have 600 acres, no problem. You have yeah. 60 acres, it depends yeah. on. Yeah. And so the second thing, San Antonio has been fortunate to have very good political leadership. We have had a series of good mayors and we had a superstar city manager, a woman named Cheryl Scully. Uh, and Cheryl had righted the ship, uh, San Antonio's the only major city in America with a triple A bond rating, uh, just extremely well-run yeah. city. Yeah. And, and one of the things that Cheryl had initiated was every five years, we do a big bond, a citywide bond for capital projects, streets, parks, drainage, you know, fire stations, libraries. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, there was going to be a bond. And so we put the land under, under option. And on our nickel, we did this master plan of a new urbanist community with the town square. And we went to the city and said, we will dedicate the right of way. We'll pay for all the soft costs, the engineering. You give us money for the hard cost. And the city, this confluence never happens yeah. where, you know, here was a hole in the major thoroughfare plan. All the other streets were in, yeah. all the other sections were in, and we were offering to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were like, oh, yes, how fast can we go? And so we, we got onto the bond and the bond was approved. And actually, we were given $11 million. Wow. And we built the streets for seven and we gave them back $4 million. Wow. This, by the way, this is how you get the public sector to love you. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> A little piece so, of advice there. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> the, the second uh, big win was we discovered a provision in the San Antonio zoning code called transit oriented design. And it came out of new urbanism. So the city had adopted a form based zoning, which is new urbanism, a code for that and a separate code for transit oriented development. And, and Clayton, I don't know what the zoning is like in Albuquerque, but in San Antonio, we have typical Euclidean zoning. Euclidean zoning is named after Euclid, New York, where the first zoning code was done. And that zoning code basically separates uses and, you know, you get all these categories. And I think in San Antonio, we've got 180 different zoning classifications. It's wow. brain damage. But the TOD zoning code kind of takes you back to, to zero. And under TOD, there's no limit on use. I mean, within reason, there's no limit on building size. You do an FAR, Florida area mm -hmm. ratio. Yeah. And, and so we can do up to a six to one ratio, which is downtown. To give you an example, Vistana is 550,000 square feet on 64,000 feet of land. So it's a nine. Wow. That's big urban density. Well, Vicinia, we can do six. Mm -hmm. number, number three, there's no building setback. You can build to the right the up property. to the line. Yeah. And Clayton, there is no on-site parking requirement. 
There you go. I mean, stop and think about that. Yeah. If you don't have to provide parking on site, you can park across the street. Yeah. Changes everything. Sure. And so um, we got the TOD. We're the first person to get it, first project to get it. And boy, when when you go in to talk to people uh, at the city and you say, well, I'm doing TOD. And they go, what? <laughs> you did a TOD? They go, yeah. yeah and it, you know, here's what we want to do. So by the way, just a little quick aside, I've had incredible support. Oh, I got to tell you a quick story. So I'm talking to the then city councilman about Vicinia, about getting the bond money and that we want to do new urbanism. We want to do a town square under this TOD zoning. And uh, it, this is a, a, a district, a suburban district. And, and his name is Ray Lopez. Great guy. He's now a state, a state rep. And I go, Ray, where's the town square for district six? Now this is modern suburbia. It's all yeah. post-World War II, post, you know, post freeways. And he stops and thinks for a minute. He goes, Ed, I think it's the parking lot for the HEB grocery store on Calabria. <laughs> it's like, I've told that story a hundred times. It's That's like, funny. The town square is the parking yeah, lot. Yeah, there you go. So I said, right? We're going to give you a park. We're going to give you a town square. Yep. So it's been sort of that kind of, you know, when you share that vision about sure. what this could be, everybody lights up. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I will, and I've said this publicly, so I'm not speaking out of turn here. My biggest adversaries have been the civil engineers. Huh. Interesting. Because that's not how they do things. Exactly. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a little example. By the way, the civil engineers design modern America that every street, you know, uh, your street in front of your house or the street in front of the mall yeah. is, is designed for an 18 wheeler. Huh? And if you stop, stop and think about it, it's that they can drive an 18 wheeler on any street. Yeah. Yeah. And once, and I'll give you an example in downtown San Antonio, where, where the corners of a street are that radius from where it starts to turn, where it finishes turning is 10 feet. So it's pretty tight corner. Yeah. Modern suburbia in the residential subdivisions, they want to do a 25 foot radius. Yeah. For, so the 18 wheeler can turn. Well, once you start doing that, you basically put an X on the pedestrian. Yeah. And so this is part of new urbanism. You have tight corners, you have narrow streets, you have big sidewalks, you line the streets with trees. It's the pedestrian experience. It's not the vehicle experience. And I have fought my engineers. I've gone through two engineering firms and it's like at every turn, it's like, guys, we're not doing the typical suburban stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is totally, totally different. And, you know, that's what's, uh, again, I think admirable about both of your projects, the Vistana and then the Vicinia is, you know, you're, you're pioneering really are you're pioneering downtown, you know, when there wasn't a lot of urban apartments and now you're pioneering again with this new urban, which adds a whole other layer of complexity and a whole lot of, uh, you know, a whole other layer of adversity to your point and educating and everything else. But there's also, you know, obviously tremendous opportunity in that regard. Um, you just got to have the, the grit again, to kind of pull that project off, you know, and that was one of my questions with like Vicinia specifically is, um, how did you, how did you like get the support of like partners on this? Did you find other guys that were passionate about 
the new urbanism or did you have to educate them or how, how does, how did that work out? Well, um, yeah, the great question. Uh, first I'm the second largest investor. Hmm, so it's, it opens every, you know, the, the conversation is completely different when you walk in and say, Hey, I'm raising X yeah. and I'm taking 20% of it. Yeah. I've got skin in the game. Yeah. Um, number two, no one knew what new urbanism is. And, you know, so there was an education process and we had done a land plan. And, you know, so we, we were able to demonstrate kind of what the dream was. Number three, the returns, you know, we, we've got a good basis in the land. We've paid all cash. And when you do that kind of density, land's value is based on the density that you can put on it. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example, Clayton. I'm, I'm selling a, uh, an apartment site. You know, I keep saying I'm retired, but I'm in the middle of selling a big apartment <laughs> site in the suburbs. But I'm selling an apartment site in the suburbs of San Antonio for $30,000 a door. Very expensive for a suburban site. And that works back to $19 a land foot because they're doing 25 units to the acre. Well, at Vicinia, I can do 100 units to the acre. Yeah. If somebody pays the same $30,000 a door, that's $3 million. And, you know, that for an, for an acre of land, you're, you know, what is that? $75 a foot? Yeah, no doubt. That's how you make money in the, in the real estate business. So, you know, just cause I know there there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of listeners listening. So I'll ask it for everybody out there, you know, but like your civil engineers. So what about the parking? Like where, where does everybody park? What about, you know, all the traditional things? Like how about the trucks and the loading, you know, all the loading dock and the getting the, you know, how, how, how are you guys designing all that? Well, there's actually two or three answers to that number one, we've narrowed all the streets, but we've put on street parking and we've, we've defined it. We've done bike lanes, by the way, we did all concrete streets, you know, so yep. just at a higher level. So your parking is actually going to be solved two or three ways. One is going to be street parking. I, I, Clayton, I, you remember I did a project called 1221 Broadway, yep, uh -huh, yep. and it sits on two blocks. One block is purely housing. One block is housing wrapping around a garage, and there's bridges. Well, the people that live in the other block, if there's a parking space down on the street on the curb, that's where they're parking. Yeah. And that was a big aha for me. And so we, we designed this project for street parking literally everywhere. Um, number two being quote urban, people will walk a block. People will walk one block to go to parking. And I've, I've discovered it in San Antonio and it works. So, um, most of what we're going to do are what we call in Texas wraps. So we'll do four story, five story buildings, uh, the wraps, the garages in the middle, or you can do a podium where the it's underneath, but, um, what, we will provide on-street parking. Actually, I've been working on a project there for two years. Uh, you know, you can see my silver hair. And there's <laughs> nothing brown anymore. But I've been working on a district garage that is a shared uh, park and ride with our local transit authority. So remember, I bought the property from the transit authority. I've done a transit center site. And I've gone to them and said, let's do an 800-car garage and you pay for part of it for park and ride, I'll pay for the rest of it. And when I do that first garage, I can build three apartment complexes around it without parking. Hmm. So I have 
one garage in the middle and I can yeah. build these projects around it. And spoken hub type of thing. Yeah. Spoken hub. Yeah. And it's, it's actually something uh, I did a master plan for an area of downtown San Antonio called river North and the new urbanist guy had recommended it. It actually got started in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. They had a very far-sighted uh, mayor, and he ended up building four or five garages so that everybody else didn't have to build a garage. And yeah. by him building a garage in a district, it would support all the small-scale development around it. So I'm trying to apply that at the vicinity. Awesome. Fascinating, for sure. And then what about the trucks? Screw the trucks. That's our problem. <laughs> so, by the way, I, I mean, I, I say that in all uh, humor. Uh, you know, th th they're going to run over everything. So, we've got rollover. Is that curve. what it, Okay. We, you know, we've got uh, 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 gravel instead of grass. And we just know they're going to do yeah, it. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I like jacking around with them. I put boulders at the corner to force yeah. them around. The yeah, and test their skill a little bit. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating project. I mean, it really is. And where does it sit today? Where are you guys at yeah, with it? I, I'm real close to breaking ground. We're going to do a, um, we're going to do a townhouse subdivision and the townhouses are going to face in the parks and then they're going to have alleys on the backside. And so the modern way of doing a townhouse is you have a garage door that takes up 20 feet of a 25 foot width and there's five feet of, of width on the side for the door. Yeah. And it's just awful. You know, yeah. I live yeah. in the garage. And so we're turning it around and we're putting the garage facing an alley and a, the front door faces onto a park. Beautiful. And Beautiful. we're doing 120 units and, um, <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm right now I'm waiting for an approval from public waste for the trash trucks <laughs> to serve the alleys to make a turn. There you go. The trucks. I mean, who, in their, who would have ever thought that you're being held up on your permit because of turning nice. radius for trash trucks? Yeah. And we're going to get there. I've had to make a couple of little tweaks, but, yeah. you know, welcome to the development business. Yeah. Well, and again, it's that pioneering. You get to you get to learn yeah. for the rest of us to benefit from. <laughs> well, yeah. it's yeah, again, it's but a fa fascinating project. I'm, I'm, uh, you're watching me. I'm smiling. I, I'm actually having a good time. It's it's a. So it's a marathon. It's not a sprint to do yeah. this sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, and you you got a great uh, website set up for that. So I'd encourage all the listeners to go and check it out. Because, I mean, once you see the renderings of what you and your partners are trying to accomplish, it really is it really is fascinating. Um, and it's something yeah. that is transformational for communities and you know makes really a drastic impact because it's again it's it's different it's changing yeah. it's changing society it's changing the way that you know we we as consumers and people that obviously live in more traditional housing uh do things so um yeah. it's exciting to watch it really is so i admire you for that um and I congratulate you on it uh, and your well, success thus far. Wait, you're, you're a real estate broker. You know not to congratulate anybody until the check goes <laughs> that, that's, that's true, right? Amen to that. Um, well, uh, we're coming up on our time. You've been super gracious with it. Um, and again, I appreciate it. Um, you know, kind of to wrap up our show, I always like to kind of put a ribbon on it with asking, you know, is there, and you maybe you mentioned it already, but is there a piece of advice that you feel like has really helped shape you and your career 
in commercial real estate that you always kind of revisit when you, you know, when times get tough or you just kind of visit it daily possibly? You know, um, Clayton, um, I, I, you know, it's come through in this that I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and it has really informed how I, um, I'm, I, I, I try to live a life of gratitude. I, I've been so fortunate in my career to have great partners and, and people that have supported me through tough times, um, believed in what I was doing. And I, I try to be grateful every day to my wife, to my sons, uh, to my partners. Um, that, that I would tell you, it, once you have a focus on being grateful for, you know, where the Lord has put you, it, it sure makes everything um, work better. Um, I, I would I would also say um, your reputation and your character. Uh, you know, I've run a long race. I've run forty year race. Um, uh, my father, my father's grave said, uh, "I've run, uh, I've run the race." and finished. And it, it has stuck with me all these years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry to get emotional. No, not at all. No, I appreciate it. So yeah, I, uh, you know, I, we asked that question. The reason I always like to wrap up with it is because, you know, it's a, it's a common, it's a common theme, you know, and I love the fact that you added gratitude, but having, the trust and the reputation and you know because that's really at the end of the day that's all you got in this business i mean you're not going to have a very long run if people can't trust you just flat out you're just not going to be successful so um you know i've again had the the blessing to work with you and be in your presence and um you know david's as well and uh you're an inspiring guy and you know there's a lot of us young guys out here that are uh aspiring you know brokers and developers and um you really really help navigate the path with a lot of this information and knowledge so i, I candidly i could talk to you all day so <laughs> next time next time i'm in san antonio or next time you're in albuquerque um we definitely need to get together but uh, I greatly, greatly appreciate you taking the time to, to be on the show today and sharing all this wealth of information with us. Well, you're welcome. And again, Clayton, I'm very proud of your success. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show and best of luck to you. Absolutely. Hey listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. If you feel someone within your network would benefit and learn from this podcast, please feel free to share this or any other episode with them. If you feel you have benefited from this podcast, please leave us a review on any platform where you listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your support and feedback, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay educated.